0: There is perhaps no book of the Bible and no event in redemptive history before the coming of Christ that so helps us understand the gospel, as is true of the Exodus. It is sort of the backbone. If you want to understand the the message of the Old Testament prophets, if you want to understand the central message of the Bible, if you want to understand what Jesus is doing on the cross and in the resurrection, you go to the Exodus. And when you go to the Exodus, you get this marvelous, symbolic representation of the gospel. And that is nowhere so clearly seen as is true of Exodus chapter 12, what we're looking at tonight. So we're looking at Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read beginning in verse one down to verse 28. And I'll just say this by way of preface. We have looked at the plagues. We looked at the first first plague, the ninth plague and the tenth plague. We have seen those creational reversals where God had brought blessing out of creation. He reverses it and brings judgment. He turns the water into blood so it can't support life. He takes away the light and gives darkness. And then he kills the firstborn. He takes away the image bearers, as it were, that he had created. God has been plaguing the gods of the Egyptians. And in that last plague, as you'll remember and know, In the death of the firstborn, there was a great cry throughout the land of Egypt that we'll see when God passes through and strikes the Egyptians and takes away the firstborn of all their people and all their livestock. And it's in that plague, that decisive blow, that God works in such a way as to have Pharaoh drive Israel out of Egypt. And yet there's one more thing that has to happen. We've spoken about this. Israel has to see that they deserve the same judgment as the Egyptians. And there has to be something that distinguishes them. And that's what we're going to see tonight in the instructions on the Passover. So we're looking at Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 28. Now, Moses writes, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb." Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout Your generations as a statute, forever you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. On the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of this land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin." None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this as this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the marked features of scripture, and you know this so well, is the central place of a sacrificial lamb. Um, We find the practice of sacrifice at the very outset of human history. No sooner did our first parents fall that God clothed them with animal skins. The better part of our Reformed forebearers believe that that was when God taught them about sacrifice. They were clothed with the skins. The animals would have been used in sacrifice. How do we know that? Well, we know that because we find the two sons of our first parents sacrificing, and one of them is sacrificing a lamb to God, Abel. They didn't decide it would be a good idea to do this. God told them what he wanted. Scripture very clearly says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And then in redemptive history, as it develops, we see that God provides a lamb for a family. He does so with Abraham. Remember when he goes to offer up Isaac and in the place of Isaac, God is going to provide a sacrificial substitute lamb, a ram caught in the thicket. And then now here, as we come into the Exodus, it's not just For an individual or for a family, it's for a nation. There's there's progress in the theme of the sacrificial lamb. Listen to this. Phil Riken says this. By the way, one of the most profound redemptive historical statements you could ever hear. So listen very carefully. In salvation, God gives what God demands. So again and again, throughout the history of redemption, God has always provided a lamb or other sacrificial animal to save his people. There is a progression with the lamb serving as a representative for larger and larger groups of people. At first, God provided one lamb for one person. Thus, Abraham offered a ram in the place of his son Isaac. Next, God provided one lamb for one household. This happened at the Passover when every family in the covenant community offered its own lamb to God. Then God provided one sacrifice for the whole nation, on the Day of Atonement, a single animal atoned for the sins of Israel. Finally, the day came when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. An individual, a family, a nation, and a lamb for the world. Now, we are here looking at this gracious provision that God is giving Israel. We've noted that in the plagues, remember, God didn't, He made a distinction between Israel and Egypt. The plagues that came on Egypt oftentimes didn't come on Israel. And yet in this final plague, the death of the firstborn, God is making very clear in giving his people this description of the Passover lamb that if they don't have this blood on the doorpost of their homes, that they will fall under the same judgment. If they go out of their house, It says at the end of this that they are out of the place of safety. God will not pass over them. He will exercise and execute judgment on them. Because as we noted, Israel is no different than Egypt. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know from later in the Old Testament that Israel had learned to practice idolatry When they were in Egypt, they served other gods. God reminds them, I I redeemed you from serving other gods. And how do we know that they served other gods? Because no sooner do they come to the foot of the mountain and get tired of waiting for Moses that they make a golden calf. They had they had done exactly like the Egyptians. They deserved the same judgment. And yet God is going to distinguish his people from the unbelieving world by giving his people the gracious provision of the blood of a substitute sacrifice. Now, as we look at this, I, there's so much in this chapter. I want us to just consider two things tonight. Don't get too excited. There's a lot under each of those two points, but two things. One, I want us to consider that the Passover lamb met God's holy requirement. And secondly, I want us to consider that the Passover lamb met the needs of, of sinners and met God's holy requirements, and it met the needs of sinners. Well, notice this before we do go into that in detail. Notice the first verse of this chapter. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Why is God changing Israel's calendar? Why at this point is he saying Forget that it's March 20th. It's going to be January 1st. Because God is essentially saying, I'm about to make you a new creation. You're about to be new creatures to me. I'm about to bring you out as newly created people. And so that you know what I'm doing, I am resetting your calendar. This is going to be your spiritual New Year day. Isn't that awesome? God is a God of new creation. And yet god is a god of absolute holiness and in order to be a god that brings about new creation there has to be something that meets god's holy requirement of his people and notice that when uh, we get the descriptions about the lamb notice this that we are told in verse 5 your lamb shall be without blemish your lamb shall be without blemish a male a year old now we know if we've read our New Testament that Jesus is the lamb without spot and without blemish. First Peter one, that he is the sinless lamb of God, that the that the type of the unblemished lamb was pointing us forward to the sinlessness of Jesus. I don't know if I've ever told you this quote, but the Scottish theologian, William Still, once said the greatest thing that Jesus ever did was to die sinless. The greatest accomplishment of Jesus's life was to die sinless. If God is going to receive a substitute, that substitute has to be entirely unlike you and me. That's why there's all that language of the unleavened bread In this passage that denotes sin and uncleanness in the old covenant. And 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 God is saying, you are like you are like leavened bread. You are unclean. And and he's saying this lamb is going to be without blemish. It's not going to have any spot or stain. There's not going to be anything but absolute perfection on it. Now. That ought to be comforting to us because, as Riken says, in salvation, God gives what he demands. Isn't it interesting? The people of Israel don't devise this. God is providing this for them. God is essentially saying, here's what I require of you to escape the judgment. And yet here is what I'm doing. I am providing that for you. God provides everything that he demands of us. There is nothing we bring to God. Nothing that makes us acceptable in his sight, whatever we need that meets his holy demands must come from him. And God is so gracious that he gives this large provision in the Passover lamb to point to the Lord Jesus. Now, um, I think it's right that we come to terms with the fact that... um, We've got to acknowledge what we deserve. There was a sense where um, God was telling Israel what they deserved. And he was telling them that if they're going to escape that ultimate judgment, there has to be a substitute. Um, It's very interesting. God only required human sacrifice one time in redemptive history when he commanded Abraham to offer up Isaac. And even there, he stopped it. And he provided a substitute animal in the place of Isaac. And yet I've often wondered if Abraham didn't think, why would God ask for a human sacrifice and then provide an animal sacrifice? Because clearly an animal cannot substitute for a human. And I think the answer, whether or not Abraham knew that, is God was intimating when he commanded the sacrifice of Isaac that ultimately it was going to be a human sacrifice that he required. It was going to be a human lamb who would take away the sin of his people. Um, Remember what the writer of Hebrews says, that the blood of bulls and goats constantly being offered can never make the consciences of the people clean. It's woefully inadequate. When when Solomon went to dedicate the temple, remember he offered something like 20,000 bulls. What's the point of that? These bulls can't take your sin away. That's the point. If they could, they would have ceased being offered. And so even here at the Passover, the people have to be thinking about this process of substitution. God is providing them something that meets his requirement. And yet this lamb, this physical, earthly, typical lamb is not going to be it ultimately. Now, we know that it's Christ because in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So let's settle that. Paul says that. And in John's gospel, and you'll remember this, there are these allusions and these intimations, right? When, when he's on the cross and they come to him and, he, and he's dead, they don't break his bones because it's written not one of its bones should be broken. John is saying this is the Passover lamb. We talked at length this morning about Jesus And the exodus, right? At the Mount of Transfiguration, his death and resurrection are called an exodus. When his blood is shed, his people are delivered. Um, There should be no question about that. And yet, we've got to come to terms with the fact that God's lamb has to meet his holy requirement. Well, secondly, and most significantly, I think, I want us to consider that the lamb... Has to meet the needs of sinners. There's kind of two directions here. It has to meet God's requirement. It has to meet the needs of sinners. Now, where where is that teased out? Well, notice this. Notice. Notice that um, in all the descriptions, that we are actually told, notice verse 7 and following, you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels of the house in which they eat it. Now you have to listen very carefully. The people of God did not eat the meat of every sacrifice that was offered for them at the tabernacle or the temple. But in the Passover lamb, every single person is required to eat it It's to be roasted, to be seasoned. by the way, this is why God allowed meat to be eaten after the flood. I don't know if you've ever wondered why is that change there. Because God knew what he was going to do with the Passover lamb. You could not be a vegetarian in the old covenant. You had to obey God and you had to eat the lamb that was roasted and seasoned. Um, now, what's the point of that? Well, remember the Lord Jesus in John 6 says, whoever feeds on me will live because of me. The eating of the Passover lamb is pointing to the fact that Jesus wants us to spiritually feed on him. It's preparing us to understand that there is something about Christ that we are taking to ourselves in a way that can only be, by analogy, explained by a soul-satisfying meal. I don't know about y'all, but I love lamb chops. I'm really glad God chose lamb. Uh, In the Old Covenant is the best of meat next to duck, arguably, but we'll settle that later. But but God wants his people to be satisfied. He wants their souls to be satisfied. That's that's what the eating is. He's saying, I am going to give you food that is going to nourish you even as I deliver you. This is going to be good for you. You are going to gain strength from this. That's why Christ says, come to me, feed on me. We can never feed on his flesh and drink his blood enough. Um, This lamb meets the needs of sinners in that it shows us that Christ is a satisfying spiritual sustenance to the soul of believers. You know, I want to ask you, when you think about the sacrifice of Christ, do you ever think I need to be a partaker of his sufferings? the way Israel was a partaker of the Passover lamb. God wants us to think that. He wants us to say, am I I desirous of feasting on the sufferings of Christ for my soul? Um, Notice that um, this lamb meets the needs of sinners also in that it's a sufficient sacrifice. Now, it's very interesting. there's a little verse here and when it talks about um, when it talks about the lamb and, and who should have one, notice verse four if the household is too small for a lamb. Now focus on this detail. If the household is too small for a lamb now I don't know about you, but we've never had too much food in our home i've got 3 boys that are eating us out of house and home it ought to strike you as strange to hear if the household is too small for the lamb ordinarily it should be if the lamb is too small for the household they can go get some from their neighbor but notice what god says in verse 4 if the household is too small for the lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take some according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. What he's saying is that 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 there's going to be plenty in this lamb to go around. There's going to be more than enough and there's going to be so much that if you find that there's more than enough in this sacrifice, you invite your neighbors and other people feast with you on it. That should very obviously tell us that Christ is sufficient, that there is never not enough in Jesus. There is always more than enough in Jesus for our households and that we ought to be calling others to be feasting on him. Isn't that an awesome thought? If the house is too small for the lamb, you should call your neighbor and you should bring him to eat whatever you can. And make your count for the lamb. I'd also just note about that in verse four that I believe we're to take away from that, that there's always enough in Christ for our spiritually hungry souls. That You'll never go to Christ to feed on him and find that there's not more nourishment in him. It's always more. It's always enough. Well, we have seen that the lamb meets the needs of sinners by being a satisfying spiritual sustenance, a sufficient sacrifice for the house and for all within. Notice that it meets the needs of sinners by way of preparation. Uh, One of the interesting things about the directions about the Passover lamb is that God doesn't say, wait till the last minute and then go get one. He actually tells them in advance, You shall get it on the 10th day. You shall keep it to the 14th day. What What's the point of that preparation? Well, I think very simply, as Christ is offered to sinners, we are not to delay in coming to him. I heard the story recently of one of my favorite preachers had visited a man in the hospital. And that man said, you know, I'm going to consider some of the things that you've said to me about the gospel over the next couple weeks. And, you know, I might I might. I'll think about it more. And this minister said, within three weeks, I was officiating that man's funeral. He delayed. He didn't get the lamb for himself. And he perished, presumably. That's the point of that. God doesn't want us to delay in coming to Christ. He wants us to go on the first sound of judgment, right? God has made a proclamation of coming judgment He's given a provision. He's delayed that judgment so that the people have the preparedness for their needs. Isn't that awesome? Our God is so infinitely wise that even in the minutia of those details, there are rich spiritual lessons for the souls of God's people. Well, I want us to also to consider that it is preserved, that Christ is preserved, right? Not one of his bones is to be broken, Phil Riken says this Jesus and the two men who were crucified with him were nailed to the crosses the day before Passover. Some of the religious leaders wanted to make sure that their bodies were taken down before the holy feast, and in order to hasten death, they asked the Romans to break the legs of their victims. Jesus's bones were left unbroken, and as John reflected on this, he recognized that these things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. This assures us that Jesus really is the perfect sacrifice for our sins, unblemished, unbroken, and I would add, and preserved for us. In the resurrection, Christ is preserved for you. God preserved the Savior. Um, You know, there are so many other details here. I just want to point out. The really big one here as we consider how this meets the needs of sinners, God, remember, tells the people that they're to take the lamb and after roasting and eating it, they're to take the blood and put it on the doorpost of their homes and whoever's inside is safe. And and God says, when I see the blood, what a comfort when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Listen to this. Charles Spurgeon said, it's a very comforting thing for you and me to behold the atonement. We gain peace and enter into rest. But after all, the grand reason of our salvation is that the Lord himself looks upon the atonement and is well pleased for his righteousness sake. In verse 13, it says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Spurgeon says, think of the holy eye of God being turned to him that takes away the sin of the world and so fixed on him that he passes over us. He has a purer eyes than to behold iniquity, but he looks upon the face of his anointed and forgives the sin. He accepts us with our sacrifice. Isn't that awesome? God looks at Jesus and passes over us on judgment day. That's everything. That is everything. Now, very interesting. Spurgeon will point out in that same sermon that there's one place where the blood was not commanded to go. Do you know where that was? On the threshold. And Spurgeon, in a very Spurgeon-esque way of spiritualizing everything, actually says that the blood was not to go on to the threshold because, woe to that man that tramples the blood of Christ underfoot. Isn't that interesting? It's to go on the entry of the place where you dwell, the house representing us and our lives and our persons. And when that blood is on our souls... And it's not under our feet. God sees the blood and he passes over us. You know, the writer of Hebrews really paints this marvelously when he talks about us being sprinkled. Our conscience is sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Think about that. The blood that he shed on the cross so long ago, the Holy Spirit applies in such a way that it's as if your soul is painted with the blood of Jesus. It's as if your soul is painted with his blood. Um, you know, some people have rejected Christianity because it's a bloody religion. And and it is. It's either going to be your blood or it was Christ's blood. And praise God for the gracious provision of the Passover lamb. Um I want to encourage you tonight, just as we meditate on this, two, two brief things. One, that we would reflect on and acknowledge that we need a lamb that meets God's holy requirement. We need a sinless, spotless lamb to be sacrificed for us. And we have that in Christ. And then secondly, I want you to consider and meditate on the fact that we need a lamb that meets our needs. You know, it's not wrong for us. To say, and sometimes people will say, well, you know, it's not about the needs of sinners, it's about God's glory, it's about both. It's about both. God is glorified in what he does, and yet you and I have deep spiritual needs that God meets through the spotless lamb, the shed blood, feeding our souls, feeding our souls with Christ, and giving us peace knowing that one day he is going to pass over us. Now, there is a day of judgment coming, and what we need in that day is this. We need to know that we are going to be passed over, and God has graciously given what he demands. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we feel as though we have Uh, inadequately just scratched the surface of this passage and we are thankful for how you and your wisdom have given us such a lively type of Jesus Christ in the Passover lamb. Lord Jesus we thank you that you are the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you Lord that you have covered us with your blood. We do pray that our souls would be painted as it were with your blood. You would give us great peace knowing that you have provided for us in your sacrifice what we need. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us a hunger to feed on the Lord Jesus Christ, to eat that sacrifice by faith in haste, to be partakers of it, to continue feasting on him and awaiting that great day when you will pass over us. Would you please assure our hearts that, who are looking in faith to your perfect, sinless Lamb Son, that you have promised that you will pass over when you see the blood. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.